welcome to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. I am Warren Munson, the host of the podcast, where founders, entrepreneurs, business leaders and experts from a variety of sectors are interviewed to explore the link between personal and business success. In line with Evolve's principles, we also look at the importance of personal development, accountability and collaborative support in the pursuit of meaningful success. Through the insights of our guests, as well as my own business journey, the aim is to inspire you, the listener, to become better in life and in business. Welcome to this week's episode. My guest today is Cass Patton, founder and CEO of OnBuy.com, the UK's most trusted online marketplace and one of the world's fastest growing marketplaces. Since OnBuy's inception in 2016, Cass has worked at the forefront of the business alongside his management team while serving as a figurehead and passionate believer in the company and all that it stands for. After taking significant risks to develop and launch the platform, the company has achieved extraordinary success and for the past three years in a row it's experienced over 600% year-on-year growth and recently received a multi-million pound investment to continue to scale up the business over the years ahead. Cass's really is an incredible story of one man turning a business idea into something massively successful in a relatively short period of time and going through phenomenal growth as a result. Kaz is honest in this story about some of the challenges that he has faced both as an individual and from a business perspective. This kind of growth is rare at the best of times, but the fact that Kaz has managed this in a highly competitive minefield of e-commerce marketplaces with his competitors being the likes of Amazon, makes it even more special. So today, Cass talks about the early challenges of OnBuy. You open your doors, day one, we've got nothing to sell. So you're saying to your retailers, come and join OnBuy, we've got this amazing plan and it's going to be fantastic for you. And the retailers are saying, but you've got no customers. And you can't get any customers because you've got nothing to sell. How he's managed to maintain focus on the business while seeking investment, all founders love getting their businesses going. It's really exciting. You're involved in every single aspect. And then along comes investment. And depending on how smooth it goes and how desirable your product is to the investment world, you know, it really dictates how much time you're going to spend fundraising. And reveals the process behind creating some semblance of work-life balance. I think it's taken me 15, 16 years to get to the point that I now am able to switch off. There's lots going on at Evolve as we develop our services and launch our business festival for November. So if you want to know more about Evolve and all of the services that we offer or subscribe to our weekly newsletter and be part of our community, then please do go to evolvemembers.com. But for now, let's get on with the show. Kaz, welcome to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on the podcast. I'm really intrigued to learn more about your story and the story of OnBuy. So I suppose we should start for our listeners there. You founded OnBuy in 2016, as I read, it's with just £80. So how did the concept for OnBuy come about and how? what were those early days like, Kaz? Yeah, let me just correct one little, uh, one little part of that. It, the the business story started with eighty pounds. By the time I got to OnBuy, I actually invested uh, half a million pound of my own money into getting that business moving. But you know I what journalists wonder. are like. You, you know what journalists <laughs> are like. Like you tell them one story about you know I started my first business at twenty one with eighty pounds, and 
and grew that to basically get on by off the ground and next minute it's uh 80 pound created on by so uh the way it goes no i mean my, my story's uh, you know really a career towards on by not it's not like i woke up one morning and went hey i've got this brilliant idea let's do this yeah. let's do this thing um i worked as an e-commerce consultant i was helping businesses to scale since i was around 14 15 i was helping businesses to go online and then after being in the military, I came out, I, I did my law degree. And while I was doing my law degree, I thought, this is so slow. This is so, so slow. So I set up my first business at 21. Um, I had 27 staff by the time I came out of university. We were working in nine countries, um, helping businesses to grow and scale uh, as fast as possible. And part of that strategy was obviously marketplace. I used to tell businesses how to make the most marketplace and everything that goes with growing e-commerce, you know, reverse logistics like returns um you know uh, the tax and cross-border implications and all of these things but marketplace was really you know where uh, the the centric piece of helping businesses to scale at fixed cost and then after years of consulting businesses to make the most of amazon and ebay and everyone else i uh, started to see that the marketplace landscape was changing um and that marketplaces or many of them won't say who you can you can uh, you can figure that out yourself. But many of those marketplaces more focused on retailing their own products than the marketplace products. And I found that my clients were playing constant cat and mouse, which products are the next products to sell, and then they were losing their top lines to the marketplace. And I just decided, enough is enough. Uh, I'm sure we can do something better. And that's where this whole thing started. Yeah. Wow. So that was a big brave decision then to take on the likes of eBay, Amazon, the other significant marketplaces out there but that was the key thing you knew you had a point of difference not to compete with your sellers that was where it started we knew we could do more for the customers down the line many of the many of the retailers i was working with were getting to a point that they were saying you know can't wait for the day we don't have to sell on x marketplace mm. um and those decisions made me realize hang on a minute you know one of the one of the other things that we saw was lots of retailers choosing to um not list all of their lines on said marketplace so our, as a consequence of that i realized hang on if we fast forward like 10 years are we going to find that these big marketplaces that have everything we want now having less because the retailers are holding back and therefore you know if you fast forward to now and that's already five years into this journey mm -hmm. the rise of big commerce the rise of shopify huge scale up in terms of e-commerce um businesses trying to not use marketplace and grow their own market share and as a consequence of that really it fueled you know this um, move away from marketplace and what on has done is he sort of stand up and gone you know you don't need to move away from marketplace marketplace is still a really really good thing for customers and it's a really good thing for retailers because they end up with fixed you know fixed costs um it, it's just a fixed cost customer fixed cost sale you can balance it all into your you know basic equations the risk is on the marketplace not the retailer and if we're not competing with the retailer then really it's that level playing field that helps drive transparency on both sides so customers know when they spend a pound on on buy it's a pound turnover for a retailer and the retailer knows that we're not there to compete with them and actually the ecosystem is just better and you become a true intermediary and it's a real collaborative approach then i suppose is that exactly we correct? say we're a hundred percent we say we're, we're a partner to all the retailers and i think that's the difference right partner means mutual um you know you've got to be mutual there's an equilibrium between the two sides we 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 bring value they bring value and um i think partner also means you're not really 
there to hurt each other's interests. And that's why I think we, we you know, differentiate so well in the market. So going back to that early days of OnBuy then, was there a point where you had a very successful business, you had 27 team members working with you? At some point, did you have to make the transition of letting that one dwindle or did those people convert into OnBuy? How did you make the transition from one to other? Yeah, I mean, we once we this started in around 2012, um, and once we'd taken the decision that we were going to try and launch on by um, by the start of 2014, we already had amassed a, a bit of wealth in the business to support the growth of the of on by around half a million pounds, and we said there's going to be a period where we need to run both businesses. So we were running a software development companies. Uh, and consultancies and then we we came up with a plan which was it's going to take two and a half years to build the basic structure of OnBuy from the start of 2014 we didn't launch until November 16 um so it's a long period of development to build you know a platform that would resonate with retailers there's a certain benchmark that's been created by companies that have been online for quarter century and and you know really had the infrastructure and cash to to be able to build great product and that means for us to be able to offer anything that's even remotely going to compete, it, there's already a benchmark. So two and a half years development, um, which, you know, w- was done sim- simultaneously to supporting other customers. And then a, a plan was launched to scale web development down, and slowly move the team over to OnBuy. So when OnBuy really took control and, and, and we said, right, we're finished with web development, we're finished, finished with, you know, helping other customers, we we're going to do our own venture and all of our customers moved on to new developers and everything all in a nice, easy, friendly way. At that point, we, we had a team of 14 that were the founding sort of employees of OnBuy. Wow. There must have been a moment, though, where that was just had to feel like a leap of faith. Oh, 100%. 100 percent yeah and when did that moment come was it the dwindling of the traditional or was it before that or after that yeah i think there was a few times it came one was you know let's be clear i started my business as a fairly modest guy from a fairly modest family um you know middle middle class but Mm. probably lower middle to be fair and um money did not come easily so when i when i was the entrepreneurial guy that went out and wanted to start my own thing and was so desperate to, to get out there into the big wide world and always been a natural salesman or whatever um and then you know to to amass a, a, a significant wealth and then to me half a million pounds to throw into a new venture is not something that you can just everyone can just do like that it was and I couldn't either so once we get to that point to be able to do this that was everything I'd worked for for 10 years that was it that was your security blanket wasn't it yeah a hundred percent you know so I I made sure that the family was secure uh, you know, we had a house and, and, and the, you know, we, we said this is going to be a big thing. And I had to let go of an income. I let go of a salary. I let go of, a, of all of that and said, right, I'm going to do this. And for the next two years, I'm not going to have a salary. Not only am I going to put all of my savings into this, but I'm also not going to have a salary. Um, and, yeah, that first few years is incredibly hard. Imagine that you launch your business. And this is the difficulty of marketplace, very different to other businesses. So you launch your business, you've got 14 people. You say, this is what we're going to do. We know how we're going to make a difference. You open your doors on day one with a product that's taking you, you know, more than two and a half years to develop um, and all of your savings and you've cut your salary to nothing. And then you say, 
I am going to make this the best e-commerce company on the planet. That's the goal. It's got the goal, draw the line in the sand. We've got several stages to get there, but you open your doors day one. We've got nothing to sell. So you're saying to your retailers, come and join on by, we've got this amazing plan and it's going to be fantastic for you. And the retailers are saying, but you've got no customers and you can't get any customers because you've got nothing to sell. You've got no product, have you? So, <laughs> yeah. so you're stuck in a catch 22 going, listen, this is a big thing. We, we we're on your side and like, well, you can be on my side, but you haven't got any customers. Is this worth my time? So it's a, you know, those first two years are very, uh, you know, very, very nervy in, in the sense that you've got to deliver the true value, but to do that, you need the supply. I know I can get the demand, but I need the supply. And that's why many, many marketplaces quit uh, and become retailers. And this is, this is the tough game. If you can, you can get through that barrier, which is almost impossible, um, then you you might actually get somewhere, uh, and that's exactly what we've been able to do. And we've been able to stay, you know, true to our mission and our roots and our foundation, which is we're 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 not gonna we're never gonna be a retailer. And I tell you what, if we weren't gonna be a retailer, then we're never gonna be a retailer. <laughs> no. That was that was tough. And in that equation between you know the the customers, the clients, and the products. Was there a moment of realization where you felt, yes, we've got traction? Because at, at that p- point, you must still have been burning cash and, and significant sums. And we'll come to fundraising and that discussion. But at what point, you know, is there a point in time when you thought we've got the right concept? We're going to become the best e-commerce company on the planet. I believe in it. I've invested everything into it. And actually, I now feel we can achieve that. Yeah, I think there was, I used to call it the seesaw analogy. It's kind of, it's, I guess it ties back to critical mass. So I used to say to my team when they joined us, look, on buys a seesaw. Think of it like this. You've got to, you've got to wait at one side. You've got to wait at the other side of the seesaw. And at the minute it's completely shifted. And that, that is a little bit about credibility because what I used to say to my sales team was retailers don't really want us at the minute. The seesaw is tipped completely one way. We really need their products because we need supply. But as we scale, as we grow, as we get more powerful for the customer, which is the ultimate goal, because retailers was really the solve the supply side. We need to do that first. So one by was very, you know, retailer centric in the first instance, naturally, because we need supply and we will remain partners to those retailers. Don't get me wrong. But there's a point where that seesaw would tip a little bit. And once it starts to tip. What's going to happen is we've got the customer. We customers are shopping with us in in huge numbers because we add value to them. They like our service. They understand our product. They add what we bring to the table, which is transparency, and we look after our retailers and everything else. And we get them good deals, which is the consequence of having these partnerships. So whole thing works. And once this seesaw starts to tip, once you get to that point of equilibrium, the balance is it's it's, and you give it that little push. That's when everything can swing the other way and when that happens the difference is we have the customer we can look after the customer we still have the partners but we're not having to fight to win retailers there's a big difference you're not trying to you know you're not even in a position where you'd need to compromise the business that you'd need to move to retail that you'd need to do anything because once that tips 
this whole thing becomes a network effect. Significant onboarding of retailers, lots of product means lots more customers. And most importantly for us, more customers able to come back for their second, third, fourth, fifth purchase and find the things that they want because there's no guarantee from first purchase where they you came up for their first purchase that when they come back for something completely different that you'd have the product. So the supply side is still gonna be a challenge for a number of years. But once that starts to tip, it will accelerate. And we went from onboarding around 80 retailers per month to 500 retailers per month, almost wow. un- overnight. You know, and, and and my my plan was accurate. And the whole team sort of said, I think it tipped. You know, like it, literally my analogy was thrown back at me. I think it tipped. And then we had to slow down the onboarding of retailers because we we weren't ready for the huge volume. And that was around February last year. Okay. So it, just just it, before coronavirus, yeah. <laughs> just before coronavirus, hit. yeah. And has it been, you know, because you know, people joke that most forecasts show the kind of typical hockey stick, mm-hmm. and most businesses don't do that; they go in plateaus. But has on by been? I mean, from the outside, when you read the articles, you hear what's going on within the business. It feels like it's that hockey stick approach. Is that the case? I guess relative to what kind of periods you're looking at we do go through periods of plateaus like inflection periods you know we go yeah. through three or four months sometimes where it's like okay we're at a certain size let's not push anymore for the moment let's look in and make some you know let's make sure we're ready and the teams are ready you, you we've gone from 14 people to almost 100 people in a really small space of time you're talking like 15 16 months so the that change requires training you've got a culture to manage you've got leadership and management to deal with and plus an ever-growing platform solutions architecture to make things easier for both the retailers the the customers and our team so there's a constant evolution and as a consequence we do go through periods of uh, of flatline where we say okay let's you know take a few months just to, to to look inwards you can't keep constantly month on month growing but the net net of that is, you know, year on year, constant growth. We've mm. grown pretty consistently. Um, and that growth will eventually become that little bit harder. There's no way you can maintain 600% forever. It's just not possible. No. But, you know, to date, past three consecutive years, 600% growth year on year. Um, and this year will probably be 300% as a, as a guide. Um, you know, and then and then it will probably ballpark 200, 200, 200 for a while. All becomes um, relative, doesn't it, when you're talking percentages? The numbers yeah. get bigger and it gets harder, yeah. Absolutely. You know, you, you, you ballpark, you're going from 200 million to 400 million to 800 million. It, it's, it's big. It's big numbers. Um, huge, huge developments. And, yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, the hockey stick's definitely true, but with those, if you don't put those inflection periods in there, um, you know, you really can't sustain that growth. And that's why it's really important to, to do that. And what's been the biggest challenge of that phenomenal growth? If there was one thing when you look back now and you, that you would have done differently, what's been the biggest challenge through that growth period? I don't know if it's that we would have done it differently because I think you do what you do because you can do it at that time. And I think if we, if I was to go back in time, would I have done things differently? only if the situation was different so if i went back in time now with the investment levels that we've got now for example and i was able to start again i would do things differently i would do things differently because my ultimate focus is the customer uh, not investors mm-hmm. um and actually it, it, sometimes those things um don't 
align exactly because you have to you have to balance both sides of the equation um sometimes you know you've got to show a healthy business to justify investment at a time that if money wasn't an issue you would do things maybe more patiently and over a different period so yeah if i had money i would do things a little bit differently and maybe some of the noise that we shouted about wouldn't have happened quite so soon and mm-hmm. and if you were the bits and pieces but overall i think you know one of the things that the bits of feedback we get at least from you know the venture capital world is this was enough this was a business no one thought would be even be possible to launch in the uk um you know and and onbuy would have never received significant investment um from a, a venture capital company um it any any sooner than we did because it's just not an opportunity anyone would have would have believed could could happen and that that's great for me because it means that there's certainly not any competition uh in the space doing what we we've been able to do because it costs too much money yeah. um and there's no one there to to want to do it and plus once on bias launch and you've got the you know the fair platform and you've got the competitive fees and you've got the structure we don't really leave much room for anyone to follow in our footsteps we 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 found the gap that retailers want that consumers need um i think with a perfect platform for the current market and how does it feel because you must have gone through with everybody you know you probably got lots of support from family friends people within the business but those early days must have been a lot of skepticism about what you were doing and those those kind of strange looks that you're never going to create a marketplace that competes with Amazon and all of those kind of things. And that tide must have turned now, particularly with the investors and the VCs and, you know, investment coming into the business. You know, was there a moment of self-doubt that you ever had, Cass? Um, I think if if you spoke to anyone that knew me personally, you, you know, they probably uh, will tell you that um, I'm not one to to stop when something is showing me an opportunity or if I believe there's an opportunity. And no, I've believed in this and I've never had a single doubt. There was one point I probably got close to a doubt around the investment piece, um, but that was more of a, a lack of experience on my part in raising money um, and therefore understanding your investor. You know, I kind of, wasn't familiar with that but we all go on our own learning journeys you know there's the truth is unless you've been a founder of a 200 million pound company before that's had to do these kind of things um how would you know i mean we're moving into territory that you know there's there's not really that many people that that have gone on those journeys and you certainly don't have the the resource to employ any of the people that have gone on those journeys so you're learning again and um, you know, you could, you, we could definitely be more efficient if we did it again, definitely. And uh, but no, I, I absolutely knew that we could do this. I knew the business model was right, and I was never weighted by anybody else's negativity because I just thought, well, if you're not with this idea, you'll just have to wait and see what happens. Let's talk again in a couple of years, um, and take it from there. Great attitude and positivity, and obviously, uh, an individual that follows your gut feeling and intuition and that's what's driven you to this point in the business the size it is now is it still following your gut feeling and intuition or does because you put structure in it has there been a transition to you know perhaps others making those critical decisions and less of your gut feeling and intuition coming into play um no i i think that we are becoming more structured 
Mm. um which is probably a well it's definitely a good thing it's a needed thing isn't it it's a needed thing you can't grow to this number without you know structure but absolutely the business has been structured in a way that you know ultimately um my vision um and my strategy around how we're going to do this has been employed might have been refined in certain places definitely with experience of new ccos ctos cfos cmos etc brought into the business to add their experience and expertise but absolutely on direction is being led from that initial vision and um i was in a strategy meeting last week with our new lead team um after several months of their initial you know bedding in and learnings and and we all met we went through everything they'd seen learn all of their experience my strategy we put together a strategy for the next three years um and you know therefore you know me still leading those conversations means that Ombai is still getting the benefit of what I see as a, as the as the future and the vision for customers. And um, very very excited to you know see the next wave of this journey brought to life. We've also dismelt dispelled the myth of the eighty pound startup and it's you know half million pound <laughs> self funded investment. So put put the record straight on that. But. To get to where you are now, we've started to touch on it. You have gone through various investment rounds. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and many entrepreneurial owner-managed businesses, they get the concept, they get the idea, they can self-fund to a point, but they do stumble at that investment point. So what's the investment journey been like for you? And, you know, how's it taking place? Have you done it in three or four different steps or... Yeah, I, I think, you know, the one thing, if there are any entrepreneurs thinking about raising money, listen to this, you know, raising money is all about doing it at the right time and not over raising. I think, you know, diluting yourself has to be a strategic play at the right time. So we got to a certain size. We, we used angels, which I was fortunate to meet along my own journey and then brought them my idea. And I was back for a while after my 500K was depleted, which, you know, doesn't take long in the space. Um, and then we raised 2.1 million um, over quite a period of time, uh, the next two years or something from angels, roughly around 100K a month or something to sustain the development of the business. And then it was time to go and get a venture capital investment, you know, solidify our journey and, and really, you know, the point of credibility. So we went out there and I remember the first VC we sat down with and they really, really liked it, but they just could not get their head around what about Amazon? What about Amazon? What about Amazon? <laughs> it's like, never mind Amazon. Like you, you, you're not thinking about this in the same yeah. way. You, you're being small minded. Don't be small minded. Um, so, you know, the, the, the raising of money at the right times is really important, but sometimes it's market condition. You know, last year we raised our first VC money and closed it in January, 2020 with fuel ventures. We went on to, um, we went on to the follow-on fund and, and then COVID hit and all the investors ran away and said, we're not putting money into funds right now. And we were like, wow, this is going to be a challenge. This is going to be a problem. So we had to go out and raise money a slightly different way through Fuels Network. Three months later, everybody ran back investing money in yeah. e-commerce because it took off. We'd missed that one. Um, and then we, <laughs> so we quickly opened up our Series A in June and said, you know what, if the market loves e-commerce, well, look how fast we've grown. We've grown it you know ridiculous ridiculous pace and we we did our series a which we raised around five million and then you know rolled into 2021 with significant growth and we've just just closed a funding round 
now, this week, actually. So congratulations. By time, yeah. So by the time this podcast comes out, um, yeah, we 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 just just close a new round. Numbers to be revealed. Um, okay. So uh, you know, very excited to watch this grow. Watch this space. Find out what that number is. And <laughs> when you you know talk to our clients and businesses I've been involved in, where we've raised you know small amounts of funding it can become a huge distraction, particularly for the founder. I mean, how have you found that? At, at times, have you felt like you're focused, needing to focus purely on investment raising and not the business? Or how have you found a balance? How have you managed that process? Yeah, that's the worst bit for founders that I think is completely understated. How much time is actually going to be spent running the company? So, you know, there's no question that all founders love getting their businesses going. It's really exciting. You're involved in every single aspect. It's really good fun. You're connecting to new teams and new people. You're getting new talent, focusing on your business. And then along comes investment. And depending on how smooth it goes and how desirable your product is to the investment world, you know, it really dictates how much time you're going to spend fundraising. If you've got a unique product that's unique, uniquely positioned and built revenue and it's proven and it's, you know, defensible and you've, you've been able to show a, a unique customer proposition, um, then realistically, if you've got that kind of a product, raising investment, as long as you've got the revenue and the right, the right numbers to back it up, should be actually quite quick. And on the flip side of that, if you've got a product that really doesn't have a USP at that point and, and, and all kinds of things like that, it gets harder and harder and harder. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, being completely candid on by, it is probably towards the hard end of that scale because when you are trying to build a business, as I said at the start of this podcast, against companies that have had, say, 25 years to develop their product and yours is still a baby compared to that, and you've got an army, an arsenal of USPs to deliver yet that you know is going to make you difference. But before you can get to that true point of differentiation, all you've got is some key underlying foundation level points of differentiation. So the fact that we don't compete with retailers that ultimately drives choice. Uh, the fact that we pay retailers the same day they make a sale, uh, the 180 day buyer protection that we can deliver because of our unique you know, connection to PayPal. All of these things do create a point of difference, but how much of a difference? And that's where it's like, well, yeah, you do, but these other platforms have this and these other platforms have that. What about this? And, and that makes it incredibly challenging. She's like, well, that's the next part of the journey. Don't ask me, you know, where my features for, you know, that you would expect to see on on by when we're doing 6 billion in sales or whatever, you know, and, and, and you've got to look at the now. Uh, And that means you're looking for an investor that understands off the data that you generated, understands the way this is actually going and the underlying development of the product. And to be blunt, quite a lot of investors, (laughs) these in the VC world are not particularly risk-taking. You think mm-hmm. that they would be being an investor, but they do everything, absolutely everything possible to mitigate risk. They're not angels. Angels are different. You know, an angel will take a risk. They see value. They can make a personal and emotional decision. I believe in this product, so I will do it. VCs don't do that. They're protecting other people's money. It's mandate. And um, the time spent raising funds can be quite substantial. Now, because of COVID last year, I raised money in January. I raised money in March. I raised money in June. I spent almost seven months last year raising money. And then as I came into this year, I spent three months this year raising money. Got a bit easier. Got a bit easier. The numbers yeah. help. <laughs> the numbers um, help. The metrics now are there. 
<laughs> yeah. But, you know, to, to do that, it is incredibly challenging. So when we were doing, you know, uh, last January, we were doing a million pound a month in sales. Um, and you jump forwards now and you're doing nearly 15 million a month in sales. It just does get progressively easier. Definitely. There's a good distinction there you've made between angel investors and the professional VCs and the VCs, you're right, want the data, they want the metrics, don't they? They want to follow mm -hmm. a trend and they want to put their money in at a point where they know that the data and the metrics are showing that growth is going to happen. Whereas your yeah, angel yeah. is going to take a punt on you and, and believe in you and and get the emotive and think this is an investment and I believe in what the founder's about and it's more about your personality and your belief being shared with them, isn't it? Yeah, and that's why our first VC backer, Fuel Ventures, you know, was led by Mark Pearson, who uh, was the founder of My Voucher Codes in the UK. He exited that business and then he launched Fuel Ventures. So for us, it meant that we were being in, we were invested in by an entrepreneur, and that was yeah. the difference, right? It was other people's money, but he was making an entrepreneurial decision. Plus, you've got to think of the type of VC. This is what I meant about knowing your business. It, at the stage we were at, I was looking for a big VC. I wanted a name, but yeah. names aren't interested in seed. Names aren't interested until the, the business is on a growth trajectory and it's proven. They sometimes go off piece for the right, you know, with the right portfolio company that they believe they can add instant value to or connect to other products mm -hmm. in the portfolio and do really well. But really their mandate is to invest at a certain size, looking at certain numbers and, um, you know, working with fuel, we're the first company that fuel ventures has ever backed three times. So it goes to show you how significant, you know, the right backer, yeah. but also, I guess, the right portfolio company for them. We're, we've shown, shown such tremendous growth. If you think that January last year, uh, we were doing a million pound a month and, you know, this year, roughly 15 million a month, that's 15 X in, in yeah. you know, 15 months. That's insane. Yeah. And I suppose that that's the piece, isn't it? You're delivering on, they're providing you with the investment you deliver. They're supporting you further, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And we've over delivered with, you know, we every, every, you know, these founders sit down and do a model. And I'm sure, you know, every founder is aware doing a financial model. And when you talk about your hockey stick, you know, it's kind of like, this is what I'm going to do my first year. This is what I'm going to do my second year. And then oh, I don't really know after that. So let's just do a big line upwards. It's all yeah, going to work go. out, right? <laughs> and that's what they do. And they just show the revenue coming in. They spend more money on marketing and they go, it'll work somewhere in there. Um, and, and that's normally how it's done. I take a different view to modeling. I try and keep things super, super conservative. And if I can sit down with the investors and say, look, I can 10x your money over three years because this is what I'm modeling. That's the way I originally took. Actually backfired on me because then what the investors do, they're so used to seeing financial models that are so overinflated that they have to pull everything right down and stress test, as they call it, those models and say, well, what happens if the revenue doesn't make that? And what happens if this? And let's look at all the assumption lines and let's halve them, you know. And then all of a sudden, it's a different picture. So, of course, that happens to me as well as inevitable. Yeah. But I wanted to live by my numbers. When we went ahead and when we look now and we just did our round and I shared the data on both our seed financial model and our Series A financial model, uh, I'd already um, 2.5x the seed model and 2x the Series A model. So now when I went to my next investor and said, this is my current model, but look at what I do with these models, um, it, it, it added a lot of confidence. It's confidence, credibility, isn't all of those kind of things, isn't it? Yeah, but that takes a track record and that, that's that's difficult. You know, you yeah. can't get that from day one. This really is, really is difficult. One of the things I'm intrigued about is usually, a, you know, 
a very high growth tech based business would be based in a city. It'd be based in, you know, London, Birmingham, Manchester, but you're based down in Paul in Dorset is where mm -hmm. the head office is. Why, what have you found the benefits in doing that are and, and why did you end up being located down here on the South coast? Well, I, I, I did my law degree in Bournemouth. So, um, fell in love with, you know, coastal, yeah. coastal living. I mean, look, you know, it's 2021 work-life balance, right? I mean, if, yeah. I, if I, if I finish work and I want to drive home past the ocean, that's, uh, that's, that's the way it is now. And actually, do you know what? COVID's made that even easier. We've got, yeah. you know, 50% of our team is not based in pool. Um, yeah. We've opened or we're in the middle of opening an office in Manchester, uh, which is actually where I'm from. So we've got the tech hub and the tech catchment, but, you know, we've already moved to many, many of our roles, not all, some are, some are required to be on site for various reasons, but many of our roles are um, remote as well as uh, uh, office. The rest are mostly hybrid and, and um, you know, there's only infrastructure type roles that are, you know, needed in the office for various reasons, but uh, it's meant that it's irrelevant where we're based and it's more relevant what tech you know what um expertise we have in the business and yeah i mean it's natural in the in the coming few years that we may end up with an office in london as well but then it's also natural we're probably going to end up with one in the usa somewhere so it's um i don't think that's hindered us in any way and clearly it hasn't and around that kind of has the pandemic changed your own ways of thinking about how you're building the team and that hybrid way of working, you know, before would you, do you think you'd have built it in more of a traditional, you know, sort of manner with some perhaps hubs around the country and, but very much office space, or were you always thinking that more hybrid way? No, I don't think we were always thinking quite so hybrid. We always, you know, part of being diverse and inclusive and trying to have that, you know, equality and equity piece in the business has always led us to consider hybrid roles, part-time, remote working for various candidates um so since we started the business since i you know literally um my personal life is extremely complicated i co-locate between pool and manchester between you know what will be the manchester office and pool um i'm a basically a single dad half of the time when i'm in pool so i have my son and i do the school pickups and the you know when there's no childcare, it's me that has to deal with those challenges um so you know as a as a CEO dad, um, it, it, I was already very much on that side of the equation. It was already more towards the modern way of working. But COVID accelerated a number of things. So even though I was supportive of hybrid and I was supportive of flexi time, and that's always been part of our policy, um, the true remote working uh, never really occurred to me in quite the same way we did have a couple of remote workers because they were key talent um in certain roles but now you know after covid and we i think it was more of an infrastructure thing we didn't have the infrastructure to support it the vpns the remote access the mm -hmm. and, and and i guess we sort of thought well we'll deal with this one day and we'll be even more uh, remote orientated but then covid changed everything and we had to do it now there was no option everybody mm -hmm. had to work from home so yeah i mean i think it accelerated where we were already already heading yeah, and i was gonna i was gonna touch on but maybe the answer is that that point of flexibility is you know a lot of businesses right now are finding it hard to recruit whatever sector you're in i mean there's clearly some sectors that are really struggling but i read somewhere you've got at least 33 vacancies right now with different mm -hmm. roles and that growth and i suppose with the additional investment coming in that's to boost the structure and build the team further 
you know, is recruitment a real challenge for you now? And if not, how are you overcoming the recruitment challenges? There's always some challenges in recruitment. Um, there's always going to be, you know, uh, we use agencies, we have in-house recruitment, we, we mix and match depending on what the role is. And there's always going to be some challenges because as the market evolves, there's shortages in certain types of candidates There's there's because there's huge demand for certain roles at any given time. And COVID has accelerated tech and e-commerce, which makes, you know, it's, it brings mm-hmm. with it its own challenges, getting devs and DevOps and whatnot. But the good thing for us, I guess, is we're very fortunate that the the, the business has started to create uh, more noise, more impact, more awareness. And as that happens, recruitment does get a little bit easier. You know, candidates are more drawn to the um, yeah. potential, the interest, the excitement. It is exciting business to work for. I mean, to be able to say, I was there when Onbuy did X or became this, and we grew from that to that. We were on a call this morning with one of our team who has now been with us for four years, um, and and I surprised her on the call with the whole company this morning and said, "Come and uh, come and come and tell everyone what it's been like." You know, she was a bit embarrassed, yeah. but uh, you know, and she was able to say, "Well, when I joined, we were just in this little glass office here, and now we had to buy downstairs, and we had to, you know, do this, and it's grown from that to this." So you know, we got those stories in the office witnessing this immense scale. Um, and that's that's brilliant to have the you know those core founding employees witnessing the change and then each new employee that comes in is going on their own growth journey with on by so i i love it i i think that i i love the fact that we're resonating with with more and more you know uh key people and it's helped us to get some top talent into on by this year as well you know significant c-suite that we've brought on board now um and you know it's not just with the c team but also Lots of uh, new lead managers, new skill sets, new experts. We brought in business intelligence, data scientists. It's, it's great. Going back to one of our earlier discussions during the course of this conversation, it was that you know your passion, your belief, your strategy. How do you induct that in those new people when they come on board? You know, because there'll be some which you've got a real touch point with. You know, your senior people joining. And some, I suppose, will just get immersed in the culture just because there's been people that have been there for four years. And But how do you make, because that must be one of the biggest fears that you have is that you start to become a bit corporate, a bit like A and other, and you, you lose this kind of focus, this passion and belief that you clearly have, Kaz, in, in what on by is. Yeah, I mean, I try to stay connected to the team as much as possible. And luckily, with 90-something employees, it's still quite mm. easy to do that. And Teams and, and and video has made that also a lot easier than it would have been if we were even 10 years younger and, um, you know, trying to round up 90 people to do a weekly catch-up would be so much harder. So I make sure that every couple of weeks, as a minimum, the whole company is on um, you know, a, a video chat where I just give updates from around the business, the growth, the drive, you know, try and connect with uh, everyone. And then I invite, you know, different people from the business to bring us updates that have happened in their team, try and get everyone on board. So even, you know, even teams that never talk during the day are aware of what is going on, where the journey is. 
Brilliant. after introducing our new strategy as well, which we did this, you know, this week, we've, we've started writing it up. The operational plan that will be drawn off the back of that strategy will actually involve every single employee at Ombuddy. So we will sit down, we will go, right, this is our strategy that will be presented to the whole company so everyone can see and what it means and why and how it connects. But then each team will be invited to come in uh, with their managers, with their line managers and myself uh, and other key people who, you know, work on that strategy and actually sit down and go, what does this mean to you? What what opportunities have you seen? Where are the challenges? Where are the walls? Let's prioritize, let's plan. I want every single team member at Ombuddy to be part of the next, you know, wave of growth and beyond so that everybody knows that they're all invited to share how they believe Ombuddy should be driven and they can all feel connected to it. So that is how we're going to achieve the next wave of growth. Communication, communication, communication it is everything, isn't it? And and sharing and breaking it down into smaller groups uh, typically does work, doesn't it? And you having that touch point, I can see that. As we start to wrap up the conversation, you've alluded to, you know, complex personal life. I mean, what has the effect of you being entrepreneurial, you going through the journey that you have had on your kind of personal family life? I think it's very hard for people like me to switch off so i found that over the years incredibly challenging i think it's taken me 15 16 years to get to the point that i now am able to switch off you know if you go back to when i was much younger i i never stopped working i worked all the time i literally did not stop if i went out for dinner I, i was doing emails on my phone if I went on a holiday, I was working the entire holiday. I There was no switch off. It was constantly yeah. on. And I think what happens is you have children, you grow up a bit, you learn a lot, and you realize how you can be more efficient. And actually, do you know what? All of this work that I'm doing, I'm never switching off. But am I actually getting more done or is it just poor prioritization? Because And some of these tasks that I'm doing, can someone else do this? Because mm-hmm. am I the best person to be doing this? Is there value in trying to make sure that what I do, I'm 100% not tired because I'm doing everything? And can we get more out of this? Um, and it's part of that evolutionary process. So there's a lot of young founders, or young's the wrong word, inexperienced founders that you know will be starting businesses now. And you know they're the ones that the employees will be saying, you know, it doesn't switch off. It's a lot of pressure. It's really fast. Uh, and, and, and it's being vented from founders and whatnot. And actually, you know, part of being experienced in having businesses and running businesses is being able to know where the pressure should go, including on yourself mm. and, man- and managing that. And I found a really good equilibrium that I can I can I can remain extremely focused on work, still do a lot of work. Don't get me wrong, um, but not push that pressure downwards, manage it really carefully, not carry it into the weekends. I can still take time uh, with the family. I can go on holiday and switch off. But then I'll also argue that also comes with size because once you get mm. to a certain size, you have more people. So it's a very difficult balance. Um, but, you know, I also, I saw recently, you know, on LinkedIn and and the news on the BBC saying, uh, you know, many, many employees suggesting that their bosses shouldn't be emailing outside of hours. And I, I put that to one side and then I, watch, I read all of the other stories about how employees should be more flexy and part time and work around employees timings. And I think, which one? 
Because actually, yeah. when I work with my team, I say to them, look, there are days that I have to go and get my son from school. There are days that I um, I don't have childcare and he'll come, uh, I'll go and get him from school, take him home and I'll have a bit of time with him. I'll, and then I'll work in the evening and might be working completely different hours. So the kind of culture I try to instill on by is if you get an email, well, why are you looking at your emails if you're not working? You work, look at your emails on your working time. Don't put email on your phone if you can't handle that. You're an adult. You yeah. know, don't put emails on your phone. Don't put Teams on your phone if, if that's a problem for you. If that beep or that buzz is a problem, don't put it on your phone. I don't want anyone to work their non-contracted hours unless it's a company emergency, which is fair. And then, you know, and we've never had one, to be fair. Um, and then as far as we're concerned, when I email, that's my that's my work-life balance. That's my, yeah. you know, that's me being able to do. Don't stop me doing it because yeah. I need to do it. Yeah, exactly. that's my rhythm. Yeah. And, and I'm with that with my team as well. I'm like, look, if you've got a flex time contract, that means that you want to do this time till this time and maybe customer service work until 8 p.m. or whatever it is, that's your working pattern. Don't not send the email because it's not somebody else's working pattern. What happens when Onbuy becomes a global company and there's different time zones, which we're right on the cusp of doing. So it's better to build the culture, which is just don't have teams on your phone. No one is asking you to check it. Don't have emails on your phone. No one's asking you to check it. So unless you can deal with it and you're comfortable silencing it, muting it, not checking it, or some, I like to glance at it. I don't have to react to it. Some people get an email, they have to react to it. Well, then it's a management thing to work with our team and say, look, an email doesn't mean you need to do anything. Um, otherwise, what do you do in a global company? You go, I need to email this person. Ooh, what time is it there? I can't send this email. <laughs> I can't so, do that. I can't do yeah. This. yeah. Um, so it, it, it's more about building into your culture that you know you could be that way. And I think one of the things I try to do is lead that from the top because my life requires that flexi time because yeah. I need to work around those things to have a better life with my children and my partner. It means that things can be, you know, uh, balanced better. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's an experience learning. Yeah. I, and I think some, some founders, some owners, business owners get there very quickly. It took me a long time. I'm not sure I'm always there hundred percent of the time right now, but it is a, it's a journey, isn't it? And I learned that I just needed to be present in the moment. Don't get too hung up about whether with the time I was working or the time I wasn't, but if I was with Mikado and the kids or doing something else I love, you know, being on my bike or doing something else I love, I just needed to be, make sure I was being present in the moment mm -hmm. and not distracted. Okay. And it's then you too find, easy. It's too easy. Yeah. Yeah. And then you find your own rhythm, don't you? And you find your own pattern and you, and that's what you've got to work to. But it takes time to do it. So and it takes courage to do it as well. So where are you going to where are you going to be five years from now? So what's the plan, Kaz? If you could have that kind of forward thinking kind of place, what would you want on by to be in five years time? And where would you be personally? Well, if I tell you our vision statement, which is quite simple, it's to be the best for every customer, best choice for every customer everywhere. And what does that mean, best choice? And I think the, the most well-rounded solution, uh, option, choice, whether that's the best choice out of all the other marketplaces, whether it means that we're delivering the best choice for the customer on the platform amongst number of retailers, we want to be the best choice in the future. Um, that is our vision statement. And 
how do we get there? Oh, there's a lot to do. You know, we, we're yeah. catching up on some of the big boys before we start, you know, really delivering the solutions that we believe will add significant value to the customer. But we want to, you know, retain customers. We want customers to feel valued. We want we want to be uh, driving loyalty with our customers. So we want them to be rewarded for that. We want to really build a solution that um, rewards our customers for their loyalty rather than charging for their loyalty like other marketplaces yeah. might do. And then bringing into that, you know, the expectation around what we call standardized service, making sure a customer knows when they come on what kind of service level they expect because they're buying from lots of different retailers with lots of different transit times. Uh, and there's lots of moving parts. But if we can get to where we believe we can, which is delivering that best choice to the customer. So a customer goes, look, I want to buy a product. Now, when they land on the website, being able to choose what's important to the customer. So instead of the marketplace dictating what's important to the customer and pre-choosing that listing and saying, this is the one, and here's some others, trying to get to a point that the customer can say, what matters to me is speed. What matters to me is price. You know, and uh, or where it comes from. I only want to buy from you know, and this gives the opportunity for the customer to have full control and on buy. You want to wait a little bit longer, but it's cheaper. That's your choice. You want it tomorrow, and it's a bit more expensive. Then that's your choice. And we're trying to give the best choice for the customer, so you can have that decision. Now that means we want to get products to you same day. It makes you know, in some cases, same hour. Um, or three weeks because you want to save some money and you want to get it from somewhere else. And that gives you all of the choice. So we really want to be that ecosystem that's fair to our retailers, not just saying this is a race to the bottom on price because that's all we care about. But actually, customers are far more complex than that. It's not Absolutely. always about price. Otherwise, how's Deliveroo and you know whatnot shot through the roof if, if, if you're paying almost twice as much for your McDonald's? Um, it's not always just about price. And that's something that we can really uh, build into the business. Brilliant. Great. And last question, always ask it as we come to the end of the podcast, what's your personal definition of success, Kaz? I think it's creating something that is not easy to be taken away. And for me, you know, I, my success has never been, I always said to people, money is a byproduct of success. It was never always just, obviously everybody needs to be yeah. comfortable. Um, but money was really the byproduct. It's always more than that. How can we create a legacy that success? How can we do greater good and have the free capital to be able to do, you know, sustainable projects and invest in charities. And um, to me, it's about legacy. How do I make a, a real, real dent in the space that I can use to a good you know a, a good advantage and, and help um help the wider community and and whatnot so yeah i think i'm trying to trying to make a real real impact brilliant thank you Kaz. you're certainly starting to do that and i definitely believe with that if you focus on the money the money doesn't come if you focus on servicing your clients creating something different being unique in your marketplace in your delivery of service or product whatever it may be then the the money and the success flows as a consequence doesn't it but I'm a real believer, focus on the money and the money probably doesn't inevitably come. Yeah, a good thing there, WhatsApp, look at WhatsApp. So yeah. WhatsApp for years of development had no revenue, none. No. And then they sold for $19 billion. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so Kaz, if people want to find out more about you, more about OnBuy, where can they go? 
Um, sellers, onbuy.com slash sell. Customers, check out onbuy.com. And if you want to re- touch with me, it's LinkedIn uh, and search for Cass Payton. I'm very active on LinkedIn. Lots of updates on there. So um, it's a, a good place to connect. Brilliant. Thank you, Kaz. You've been a great guest on the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Thank you. Having not spent any time or spoken to Kaz before that discussion, I was just astounded by his focus, passion and belief in all that he does and his belief in OnBuy and what he wants it to become. OnBuy's continued growth until this point has been truly remarkable and it's got to be testament to Kaz's determination, single-mindedness and confidence. You really have to admire his level of self-belief and I think it's a great lesson for any startup in that if you truly believe in whatever it is you're selling and the mission you set out to achieve and stick to those founding values and principles that you have, you do your chances of long-term success a great deal of good. Thank you for listening and if you do want to learn more about Evolve then please do go to evolvemembers.com. You can register there for our weekly insights and newsletter as well as learn about the services that we offer at Evolve including our peer groups, one-to-one coaching, courses for teams as well as our lovely co-working space in Ashley Crossing Pool. And if you are a business leader in Dorset and Hampshire then I'm really excited to be able to say that through the Dorset LEP and the Solent LEP we have some fully funded peer network and peer group programs that we can offer to you so if you want to learn more again go to the website or please call the team i really do hope you've enjoyed this episode and if so please help us by rating reviewing and subscribing and listening to future episodes thank you for listening